Introducing Dr. Rick Will See You Now, a book from Dr. Rick. Hi, my name is Dr. Rick, world-renowned parental life coach. As the pioneer of parentamorphosis, he's created the ultimate guide to help sufferers everywhere unbecome their parents. It's me in a book, but you get to talk back to the book, which is like talking to me. So it's an interactive parental life journey that I'm super proud of. This book has helped me reach so many young homeowners who have become their parents. Hey, what's the lowest you'll go on one of these mugs? Well, remember, no haggling in stores. Ah, oh, yeah, right? chapter six, yep. They may have read the book, but they still have a long way to go. I hoping to get your John Hancock on there. Well, let's just call it a signature. I noticed there weren't any refreshments, so I'm just gonna leave a couple of snackies. Folks, the line's a shambles. Let's tuck it in, sir. Come on. Come on. Okay. Oh. We're at the movies and we need to silence our phone. Who knows where that button is? I don't have silent. Everyone does right up here. It happens to all of us. We buy a new home and we turn into our parents. What I do is help new homeowners overcome this. Was oh, that an adjustable spanner? Good choice, Steve. Okay, don't forget, you're not assisting him. You hired him. You have nowhere to sit. You have too many. Who else reads books about submarines? My dad. Yeah. Everyone, we made it. My job is to help new homeowners who have turned into their parents. I'm having a big lunch and then just a snack for so dinner. So we're just... using a speakerphone in this store. Is that a good idea? One of the ways I do that is to get them out of the home. You're looking for a grout brush. This Garth, is the... did he ask for your help? No. 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 We all see it. We all see it. He has blue hair. OK. Blue. Hi, Dr. Rick. It's Julie. Just leaving you a voicemail. My number is 618-437-7425. Okay. Can anyone tell me what Julie did wrong there? You gotta repeat the number. I mean, no one's ever gonna get it the first time. Nope. Didn't leave her last name. No, the, the phone tells you who called. Yeah, she didn't mention a good time to call her back. How am I supposed to know when to call her back? Uh, no, she just sh shouldn't have left a voicemail. Nine out of 10 times a text will do. We're talking about trusting your GPS. I promise you, the GPS technology developed by the U.S. military, backed by thousands of satellites and supercomputers, knows where it's going better than you. It has no reason to lie or send you on a longer way. No matter how local or up-to-date on construction jobs you are, GPS wins every time. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Hope. Uh, my name is Scott Raines. If you are new to Hope, and, and I hope some of you are new, uh, this congregation loves to invite people to come and experience uh, the good things that God is doing in their lives when we gather together for worship. And so uh, hopefully somebody invited you to come. And, and one of the things you need to know about us, if, if you're new to Hope, we love to laugh at this church. C.S. Lewis says, joy is the serious business of heaven. And I wonder if uh, what C.S. Lewis is getting at, he was a real smart uh, guy in England in the last century that helped people think about faith in uh, some different kinds of ways. I, I think he's pointing to this idea, if we have uh, these desires and these experiences in life that are great, but they only last for a little while, they, they are fleeting, they, they don't stay forever, he says they're pointing us to the reality of eternity. Like, you know, if you, you're turning on the game yesterday, your favorite uh, college football team, and you see the score is 7-3, to three, uh, your team is winning, and then you get, get busy doing other things, and you check back in, and now they're behind 50. There was joy for a moment, but it was a short-lived kind of joy. And C.S. Lewis says a time is coming, there's a time and place, an eternity with God, where we get to experience the fullness of joy. And so when we experience joy in this world, on this earth, it points to the fullness of joy. When I watch Dr. Rick and those commercials that Progressive does, man, it fills me with a lot of joy. I, 
I, it, I see my parents in those, and, and what's even greater, I think, is more and more all the time, I see myself in those. I can't tell you the last time I talked on the phone by holding it up to my ear. And I don't like to have those little earbuds in my... I, I just put that sucker on speakerphone. Now, I do not do it in public yet. I saw people out in the hallways today talking speakerphone on their... It's like, what are you doing? Anyway, um, that's not what we're here to talk about. We're here to talk about the serious condition of parentamorphosis. And uh, Dr. Rick says it's uh, afflicting uh, millions of us worldwide. Now, uh, this condition is not new. It has been around from the beginning. If you have your Bibles, open them up. Uh, the first book in the scriptures is the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 12, we are introduced to a family, uh, the family of Abraham and Sarah. And uh, God says to them, God promises them, you will be the parents of a great nation. And then something happens in Genesis 12 that's uh, a defining moment in uh, the history of this family. I'll start reading in verse 10. At that time, a severe famine struck the land of Canaan, forcing Abram to go down to Egypt, where he lived as a foreigner. As he was approaching the border of Egypt, Abram said to his wife Sarai, Look, you are a very beautiful woman. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is my wife. Let's kill him, then we can have her. So, please tell them you are my sister. Then they will spare my life and treat me well because of their interest in you. This is Abram, a hero of our faith. And I think a lot of times, uh, Abram is sensing danger. He's sensing that his uh, well-being is about to suffer as they go into this uh, strange land, this foreign land. So his plan is, uh, wife, just pretend to be my sister. That's his plan for keeping himself safe. Never mind, it's going to put her in danger. And never mind, it's going to cause her well-being to suffer. What we read is when Pharaoh finds out that Sarah is single, he brings her into the palace as his wife. And we read through this story, and, and sometimes we read so quickly, we, we've heard about Abram, Father Abraham, and our, our instinct is to say, well, this must be a good thing that Abram's doing. I mean, after all, it goes really well for him. The Egyptians do not mistreat him. His plan is working. They, they, in fact, give him a lot of gifts because of Sarah. He becomes wealthy. They give him a lot of possessions, livestock, and the kinds of things that would make you wealthy in that culture. They give it to Abram. And so it would be easy to look at it and say, yeah, this is a good plan. In fact, when God shows up in the story, God doesn't say, oh, Abram, that was a terrible decision. God gets angry and punishes Pharaoh. So just to be clear, just to be clear, this was not a good strategy. This is not Father Abraham modeling for husbands out there how to treat your wives. This is a biblical example of the objectification of women. He prostitutes his wife. And he thinks it's a good thing. What, makes, what in the text makes me think uh, Abram thinks this is a good thing? As you keep going in the story, God changes their name to Abraham and Sarah. You get to chapter 20, and Abraham does the same thing again. This time he's in a different place. It's a region called uh, Gerar. But he asks his wife to pretend to be his sister, and they get even more gifts and possessions and wealth. Now, both of these stories uh, where Abraham asked Sarah to do this, 
Genesis 12, Genesis 20, both of these stories happen before their son Isaac is born. Uh, we read about Isaac being born in uh, chapter 21, and as you keep just kind of fast-forwarding through the story, in chapter 23, Sarah, uh, the mother, dies. Chapter 24, Isaac marries a woman named Rebecca. Chapter 25, Abraham dies. And then you get to chapter 26, and this is parentamorphosis. I'll start reading in verse 1. A severe famine now struck the land, as had happened before in Abraham's time. So Isaac moved to Gerar, where Abimelech, king of the Philistines, lived. It, notice that the writer of the book of Genesis wants us to make sure we don't miss the point. As had happened before in Abraham's time. This story, this set of circumstances has happened before in the life of Isaac's father. What is the son going to do given the same set of circumstances? Is the son going to follow his father's footsteps or is the son going to chart his own path? Now before we see what Isaac chooses to do, how Isaac chooses to respond in, in this situation, God shows up. And God says to Isaac, I want you to just hang out in this place for a while. Just be patient. Just trust me. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to bless you. God basically, his message to Isaac is, trust me, trust me, trust me. And Isaac cannot do it. Instead, Isaac takes matters into his own hands, and this is what we read in verse 7. When the men who lived there asked Isaac about his wife, Rebekah, he said, she is my sister. He was afraid to say, she is my wife. He thought, they will kill me to get her because she is so beautiful. Sound familiar? He has become his father. Now, one of the details I think is really important. Genesis 12, Genesis 20, when Abram asks Sarah to pretend to be his sister, it happens before Isaac is born. Chapter 26, Isaac does the same thing that his dad did. How does Isaac learn to do that? How does he learn to act that way? He doesn't learn it from watching his father do it. It's almost like the scripture writer is, is trying to get us to see in this family, there's something in the air. There's something in the atmosphere of this family that causes husbands to think it's okay to treat their wives this way. And I wanted to start off with this story just to kind of abruptly ask you to consider the possibility, the reality, that you are living in a family system. I don't know what kind of family system you are living in, but you are living in a family system. Uh, there's a guy by the name of Dr. Murray Bowen. He is uh, credited with being the originator of something called family systems theory, kind of means this. A person's behavior is inextricably connected with the behaviors and attitudes they have learned from their family. My behavior, your behavior, is inextricably connected with the behaviors and attitudes we have learned from our family. And so in family systems theory, they pay careful attention to family trees, but 
uh, more than just family trees. They create something called a genogram. Uh, we had to study this in seminary. A genogram is, is a way of looking at a family tree, but not just saying, you know, this is the grandparent, this is the parent, this is the grandchild, and these are the cousins seven times removed or whatever. It's also looking at family patterns. So you have different um, shapes that indicate, like, uh, is there a pattern of marriages ending in divorce in this family system? Is there a pattern of addiction or substance abuse in this family system? And the genogram has a way of helping you actually look at it and see that. So we're not going to do a genogram for the family of Abraham and Sarah, but let's just talk about that family system for a little bit. You've got Abraham and Sarah and their son Isaac. I conveniently forgot to mention Isaac is not the first son in this family system. Ishmael is the first son. Uh, Abraham and Sarah are promised by God, you are going to be the parents of a great nation. And then they wait and wait and wait. They struggle with infertility. They think, we're too old to be parents, or we're going to become too old to be, to be parents. So Sarah suggests to Abraham, why don't we have a child with Hagar, my servant girl? And Ishmael is born. That does not help. It creates all kinds of issues in the family system. Eventually, Isaac comes on the scene, and Abraham and Sarah favor Isaac over Ishmael. Ishmael is basically kicked out of the family. Isaac marries Rebekah. Again, the details that the biblical writers give us are really important. And one of the details we are told when Jacob and Esau is born, the writer of Genesis says Jacob's favorite was Esau, and Rebekah's favorite, uh, Isaac's favorite was Esau, Rebekah's favorite was Jacob. That leads to all kinds of issues. Sibling rivalry, conflict and competition. It gets so bad, at one point, Esau threatens to kill his brother. So Jacob runs for his life. As he's fleeing, he finds himself uh, uh, working for a family that has two daughters, Rachel and Leah. He ends up marrying both of those daughters. They have 12 sons among them. One of them is Joseph, and again, one of the central stories of the first book of the Bible, Jacob's favorite son was Joseph. And the other 11 brothers didn't like that reality, so they beat Joseph up. And they sell him to slave traders, and he ends up in Egypt. First book of the Bible, boom. Uh, family systems theory talks about this kind of generational patterns Families so profoundly affect their members' thoughts, feelings, and actions that it often seems as if people are living under the same emotional skin. Now, we understand uh, genetic patterns being passed down generation to generation. It makes sense if we live under the same genetic skin or physical skin. Family systems theory says there, there are relational and emotional patterns, behavioral patterns that get passed down. It's like we're living under the same emotional skin. And this gets us to the Ten Commandments. We're in a message series called How to Do Life. And the first three weeks of the series, we looked at the commandments that deal primarily with our relationship with God. You shall have no other gods. Don't misuse the name of the Lord. Remember the Sabbath. Today, and from here on out in the uh, message series, we're looking at commandments that primarily uh, talk about our relationships with the people in our lives, starting with our family. Honor your father and mother. Honor your father and mother. The Hebrew word that gets translated honor is kabod. 
And most of the time in the Old Testament, when kabod shows up, it gets translated heavy. Heavy. So the idea of honoring our father and mother, kabodding our father and mother, is to make them heavy in our lives. Weighty in our lives. Like, as you live your life, pay attention and weigh the ideas, the uh, thoughts, the patterns of behavior and relating of your parents. Let's look at this family of Abraham and Sarah. So Isaac weighs, Isaac weighs his parents' behavior. He, he, he weighs this idea of having your uh, wife pretend to be your sister. But the question I think we have to ask ourselves is, does he honor his parents when he does the same thing that his parents did? Or, or what about Jacob? Jacob grows up in this family system where uh, parents are playing favorites. He observes that. He weighs that. And then Jacob decides, I'm going to do the same thing, and Joseph's going to be my favorite son. Jacob is weighing all of this, but we have to ask the question, is he honoring his father and mother when he does the same thing, when he engages in the same behavior that they're engaging in? I hope we would all see that sometimes, sometimes the best way to honor your father and mother is not to do the same thing that they did. I wonder if maybe this would be a, a way of thinking about it. What, it, what does it look like to honor our father and mother? It means we have to do the really, 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 really hard work of weighing family patterns. Now, some of this is a piece of cake. There are certain family patterns that we love. And it's like, this is great. We want to be sure that we want to pass on to the next generation these family patterns that have been so good and helpful in our lives. But there are also unhealthy patterns. And it's, it is work to identify the unhealthy patterns and then to make a decision, I'm going to do whatever I can with God's help, by God's grace, not to pass on to the next generation these unhealthy patterns that I've had to live with. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about attachment science. I want to talk about that just really briefly. Uh, attachment science is this idea that's pretty uh, much, everybody regards this as fact. We're, as human beings, we're wired for connection, and as soon as we are born, we are scanning our environment for cues of safety and cues of danger. And if you live in a home environment, if you have a family system where you experience more safety than danger, you develop what they call secure attachment. If you're in a family environment where you have a little bit more cues of uh, danger than cues of safety, you develop insecure attachment. So you can, they, about 50-50, the population, half of us have secure attachment, half of us have insecure attachment, different types of insecure attachment. You could have avoidant insecure attachment, fearful insecure attachment, anxious insecure attachment. Here's why I wanted to bring it up today. When you get to church and the preacher says, today we're going to look at the commandment, honor your father and mother, if when you heard that news you were like, oh, yep, of course, it's probably past time for me to give my parents a call or to send them a note and just say thank you uh, for the way. If that's your response when you hear we're talking about the commandment to honor your father and mother, you probably have a family system that gave you secure attachment. And this commandment makes a ton of sense to you when you hear it. Of course I'm going to honor 
my mother and my father. If when you hear we're talking about this commandment of honoring your father and mother, something in you does not sit right. It, it causes you to shift a little bit uncomfortably in your seat. And you wonder exactly what is this preacher going to say to me today. It's a good likelihood that your family system is the kind of family system that develops people with insecure attachment. And you find yourselves almost rolling your eyes a little bit. Seriously? Honor? How do I honor people who are not honorable? So we all just need to be reminded, biblically speaking, when the Bible talks about this idea of honor, honoring parents, it's not the same as obeying parents. It's not the same as respecting parents. It's weighing the patterns. Which are the patterns that are healthy? Which are the patterns that are not so healthy? Uh, there's a book came out a decade or so ago written by Malcolm Gladwell. The book is called Outliers, and in the book he looks at uh, different patterns that lead to success. What is it that causes people to be successful musicians or successful athletes or uh, successful in the business world? And one of the chapters is devoted to Korean airlines. And it turns out in the 1990s, uh, they almost shut down Korean airlines uh, because Korean airlines, they were having way too many accidents. The International Aviation Authority almost said, you're done. Uh, instead of shutting down, the leadership at Korean Airlines, they went to work trying to do this hard internal examination. Is there something we're doing wrong that's leading to all of these accidents? And it turns out it had everything to do with culture. The Korean culture is a high honor culture, which is great, which is wonderful. Like, you don't question authority. Um, you, you don't disrespect your parents, you don't disrespect your elders. Wonderful, beautiful, in all kinds of ways. But when you're in the cockpit of an airplane, it actually leads to issues. So I want you to watch this video, it's just a couple minutes long, where Malcolm Gladwell talks about the way culture is impacting plane crashes. Take a look. The overwhelming majority of crashes are the result of a breakdown in communication between the co-pilot and the pilot. Something comes up, a situation emerges that requires those two pilots to be in open and honest um, um, uh, communication, and they fail to do that. One person withholds information, one person doesn't share, whatever. They're invariably social failures. So the question is, this is why there's a cultural component. Is it easier in some cultures for an, a subordinate to speak openly and honestly to his superior than in other cultures? And the answer is absolutely. In fact, this is one of the dimensions on which cultures vary the most. It's called um, power distance, right? It is the respect for hierarchy. And there are some cultures that have zero respect for hierarchy and some cultures that are, for which that is the, the dominant paradigm of social interaction. Korea, as it happens, is a culture which has enormous respect for hierarchy, where power distance is a... In fact, the entire linguistic structure of the Korean language is infused with this sense of, how do I treat you if you are older and superior to me? I use specific pronounal forms. I mean, it goes on and on and on, right? Well, that is a, in 99% of, of cases, a beautiful and wonderful thing. In the, in the cockpit, it's a problem, right? And so you see, whenever you see cultures, if you overlay the list of cultures in the world by their respect for power distance with the list of cultures in the world by their plane crashes per capita, it's basically the same list. 
Um, so, it's, so it's the ones that are hierarchical that have the most plane crashes. That have the most plane crashes. So you'll see, so classic, you know. And what, what did Korean Airlines do? They, 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 well, they this find? is the other, second part of this argument, which is this is not to say that cult certain cultures are incapable of doing that task. It just means that if they want to get better, they have to address the cultural component of, of um, their interaction. If they want to get better, they have to address the cultural component. I read that chapter of that book and I uh, listen to him talk about it there and I'm thinking family systems theory and this commandment that God gives us to honor our father and mother. Like, how is it possible? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, this unhealthy relational pattern keeps getting passed down generation after generation and nothing gets better. How's that possible? So what Korean Air did, they, they did this hard internal examination and they trained co-pilots differently because the, they were finding the co-pilots when they saw the head pilot making a mistake, making an error, the co-pilots were way too slow to point out the error. They thought they were disrespecting the co-pilot, disrespecting uh, their uh, superior if they pointed out a mistake. They thought they were, that would be dishonoring. You know what dishonors a pilot? Allowing them to fly a plane into the side of a mountain. But that's what was happening. That's what was happening. So, a similar kind of process is important for our family systems. Will you be willing to engage in this difficult and sometimes scary process of examining the culture, examining the relational patterns that are systemic and generational in order to get better? in order to get better. This is not an easy thing to do. Let me just say it again. It's not an easy thing to do. It can feel impossible, but it's not impossible. God gives the Ten Commandments. Who does he give the Ten Commandments to? The family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. After generations, God says to them as they're leaving slavery in Egypt on their way to freedom in the Promised Land, we need to create some new relational patterns. Let me give you these commandments. And, and remember, the, the, this commandment is the first one with a promise, that it may go well for you in the land you're about to enter. God is saying, if you really want it to go well for you in the land you're about to enter, you gotta start acting differently, relating to one another differently. Jesus comes on the scene after his life, death, and resurrection. The church is grown, the church is spreading, and... Uh, the leaders of the early church, and it gets recorded in the New Testament of our Bible, they do the same thing. We have noticed some relational patterns in families that are not helpful. And so we want to give you some wisdom as we're creating this new family, the family of God, the body of Christ. We want to relate to one another differently in this family. And they come up with, it's called the household codes of the New Testament. Household codes. How do you relate to one another in your family? And Christian and non-Christian historians alike will credit the household codes of the New Testament of changing relational dynamics in the Roman Empire and in those early centuries and, and making life better, particularly for women and children. A long, long way to go still, but it changed things and moved things in, in a good direction. So you can find the household codes in places like uh, Colossians and Titus and uh, 1 Peter, 
Our Bible reading for today from Ephesians is part of the household code in Ephesians. I'll I'll just read this again, Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Children, obey your parents because you belong to the Lord, for this is the right thing to do. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. If you honor your father and mother, things will go well for you and you will have a long life on the earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger by the way you treat them. Rather, bring them up with the discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord. This is not how the household code begins. Uh, The people who decided to put, you know, chapters and verses, that's really helpful in a lot of ways, and sometimes it messes us up a little bit. Because this particular part of the household code is kind of right in the middle of it. This is not how it starts. The household code starts back in chapter 5, verse 21. I will put it up on the screen. Let's read this out loud together. Read it with me. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. What Scripture teaches us, people, if you're taking notes, take notes on this. What Scripture teaches us, healthy family system, does not begin with getting our kids to obey us and honor us. It begins with reverence for Christ. It doesn't begin with figuring out who gets to wear the pants in the family, who gets to make the decisions, the man or the woman. It begins with reverence for Christ. When you make reverence for Christ the starting point, it starts to change the relational dynamics. I'm going to say it one more time. Parents in the room, the starting place, the starting place, the starting place is not getting your kids to honor and obey you. The starting place is submitting to your children out of reverence for Christ. We live in a particular time and place in history where we don't really like the idea of submitting. And there's all kinds of good reasons for that. And one of the reasons is because people like me, uh, pastors, religious leaders for centuries, have misused and misinterpreted this verse to mistreat people rather than to help people and love people. What what does Paul mean when Paul says submit to one another? Think about Jesus. Jesus is the most powerful person who ever lived. Nobody has ever had more power than Jesus. What does Jesus do with his power? He gives it away. He uses his power to help those who have very little power. You know what I like to do when I get a little bit of power? Get a little bit more power. Jesus does it differently. Jesus leverages everything he has to get under the burdens of people, to lift them up so they can experience more life. That's what the cross, the crucifixion is all about. Jesus, he gives all his power away. He leverages everything he has so you and I can be set free from the burden of sin. What does it look like for you in your family to leverage everything you have, to give your power away for the sake of lifting up those who may be powerless, like children, or removing the burden that people might be carrying in your family? I'm going to say something now. You do not have to agree with what I'm about to say. I want you to just pay attention to what goes on inside you when you listen to me say it. That make sense? Everybody put your tomatoes down. What if the best way for you to honor your father and mother 
is to be a better parent to your children than your parents were to you. Pay attention to what's going on inside you when you listen to that. What if the best way for you to honor your father and mother is to be a better parent to your children than your parents were to you? I think sometimes when you you listen to that, um, we cringe a little bit on the inside because it feels like a statement like that is coming from a place of judgment or it's rooted in bitterness. My parents, I can't believe they did. Or uh, arrogance, I'm so much better. Let me just rephrase it a little bit and, and see if this sits a little bit better with you. Parents in the room, do you hope your children are better at parenting than you are? Might you even pray and ask God to help your children become better parents than you are? I would hope we would all say absolutely, of course. And if there's a pause in us, if we feel a pause in us before we're able to say yes, I I think that pause is pointing to part of the problem, and the problem can be summarized with one word, competition. What the Bible teaches is there is a downward flow of love. We love because God first loves us, scriptures say. So just think about myself. There's a God who pours out his love into my life. And as I am filled up with the love of God, you cannot give what you haven't received. As I am filled up with the love of God, I am able to pour out that love to the people around me, to my wife, to my kids, to my friends and neighbors, to my congregation. But there's a downward flow to this. Sometimes what happens in family systems is we try to change the flow. And parents try to get children to fill their bucket. And it doesn't work that way. It does not work that way. It leads to unhealth and competition. I could probably preach an entire message series on this. I'm going to try to do it in five or seven minutes. You're really smart people. If anything that I say in these next five or seven minutes strikes a chord with you, use the Google machine. Uh, Go to the library and get a book. Study up on some of this stuff because it's probably connected to your family system. How does competition mess with a healthy flow of love in our family systems? Number one, triangulation. Uh, At the end of uh, Genesis 2, uh, at the creation of Adam and Eve, the scriptures say, this explains why a man will leave his mother and father and be united to his wife, and the two will become one. So early on, second page of the Bible, we get told that one person will leave their family system and be united to another person who leaves their family system, and those two will create a new family system. Of course, they will bring certain traits and uh, patterns from the original family system into this new system they're creating. But can I just say, it's really difficult to create a new family system. And so sometimes, thinking this will be helpful, we allow a third person to enter into this new family system we're trying to create, and often that third person is an in-law. And it creates triangulation and competition and conflict and unhealth in the relationship, and that's all I'm going to say about that. You can study that up for yourself. The other way triangulation happens is uh, husbands and wives are not feeling the connection they thought they were going to experience in this marriage. I know what will help. Let's have a baby. And then what my husband isn't doing for me or what my wife isn't doing for me, maybe the baby will do that for me. 
and meet my needs and fill my bucket. And again, I hope you see the way that that creates this triangulation, creates conflict, competition in the family system. It's unhealthy. And a lot of people have studied this and written gobs and gobs and gobs on this and how to get better. So triangulation is one way. Competition messes with the healthy flow of love. The other way, a second way, um, don't need a show of hands or anything. Anybody noticing uh, there seems like there's more and more behavioral issues in our children? There are actually people studying this sort of thing. People at places like Harvard, really smart people like this guy, Dan Kindlin, he, he's trying to explore what is the source? Where, where are all these behavioral issues coming from? And you're probably not going to like what he finds. He says, we use kids like Prozac. People don't necessarily, oh, I want to read the whole thing. Back, back up. Yeah. People don't necessarily feel great about their spouse or their job. But the kids are the bright spot in their day. Parents want to get satisfaction from their kids. In the dot, dot, dot there, he talks about, so what happens in those hours from like 5 o'clock until bedtime? Parents are exhausted, and they don't want to continue to teach and instruct kids, here's how you relate to one another and, and set boundaries and uh, discipline and correct. And we just want to just get satisfaction from my kids. We use, anytime you use language like using your kid, getting something from your kid instead of giving to your kid, competition has been created and the flow of love is being messed with. Final way, competition is messing with this healthy flow of love. Uh, you know the primary place that parents get satisfaction from their kids these days? Watching our kids compete and succeed. And so again, the people who are studying this thing, they say, yeah, parents are teaching our kids all kinds of things, but the focus of parenting today, this is what the experts are saying, the focus of parenting today is not teaching our kids how to relate to one another, it's teaching our kids how to compete with one another. We live in Ankeny, Iowa. We love to compete. This is not me saying competition is the root of all evil. This is me saying, let us honor our mother and father. Let us weigh behaviors and patterns that we've developed. Let us weigh the behaviors and patterns of the family system we're creating. And let's do the hard and honest work of saying, of course, there are some things about competition that are fantastic. But what are the parts of competition that are actually getting in the way of healthy family systems? That are creating patterns that are not going to lead to more life. I think Boz mentioned it in announcements, but this Wednesday, it's not on the church calendar or anything. Uh, this Wednesday, we're having Pastor Scott and friends. We had originally scheduled it for last Wednesday, and my friends canceled on me. <laughs> um, no, uh, th th but they said, we can, do it, we can do it the following. So we're doing it this Wednesday at 6.30, and all Pastor Scott and friends is, is, is me sitting up here and having a conversation with a couple people from our church. So this week, it's Jamie and Charlene Cole. And Jamie and Charlene Cole, are a, they have four kids. They've been coming to Hope forever and ever. They love competition. Jamie works for an NFL team. 
He runs kicking camps uh, where he helps people learn how to compete at a high enough level that they might be able to get a scholarship, play in college, uh, play professionally. They've seen the best side of competition and they've seen the worst side of competition. And people, it's ugly. So we're going to have a conversation about competition. What's good? What do we need to avoid? A competition, a con, I keep saying a competition, a conversation about parenting. Um, when you have kids whose schedules are jam-packed, how do you make faith a priority? And so 6.30 right here if you want to come to that. Jamie and Charlene would be the first to tell you they're not experts. They don't have this figured out. Uh, I would be the first to tell you Jamie and Charlene are not experts. They don't, no. I, I would be the first to tell you I'm not an expert. I don't have it figured out, but we need to talk about this. I think most of you in the room would say, we're not experts, we don't have it figured out. Here's my encouragement to you. When's the last time you told your kids that? I'm not an expert, I don't have it figured out. I'm trying, but I know I'm, here's an example of where I messed up. I blew it and I'm sorry. 60 and 70 year old parents in the room. When's the last time you said that to your kids? We have a God who wants to pour out his love into our lives. Not so that we'll get it perfect, but so that when we mess up, we will remember that doesn't mean God's kicking us out. It means God loves us with an unconditional love, a love that pursues us and a love that makes us better. So let's stand together and let's sing about that love right now.